Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, also, thank you, guest worship team. That was, I see three here, over here. Thank you so much. Uh, that was really special. Um, we are wrapping up our series on sweet dreams. We've been looking at, really, dreams in Scripture and this beautiful picture of God reaching out and revealing himself, speaking to, guiding people in moments when they least expect it, in the moments that they're least working for it. I was thinking about the, the way that we all can feel there's, there's something ahead of us in a place where we're going, and it's a different story for each one of us. And we kind of wonder, do we have to be perfect to get there to make it right? How many mistakes am I allowed? I was listening to an interview the other day with a now-retired umpire from, the major, from Major League Baseball, and I was listening to it on AM radio, by the way. I was really in the past. Uh, and so he's being interviewed. He started in the 1960s, and the first game he ever officiated was a, was a game where the Yankees were playing, and the now famous legendary team manager, Casey Stengel, was there. And uh, Stengel was famous for his Stengelisms. He would say these bizarre sayings, and he went up to the guy, and he said, hey, I can tell you're nervous, and I just need you to know it's not that big of a deal. You just have to be perfect on your first day and improve from there. <laughs> and... Uh, it's, I think we can feel that pressure of like, when the stakes are high, you got to be perfect on your first day and improve from there. And we're going to wrap up this series with not one dream, not two, not three, not four, but five dreams for the price of one. If you call in the next 15 minutes, we'll throw in a sixth one for free. Now, it is five dreams, and they are like these bumpers, like when you're going bowling in the bumper, and it bumps you, and it bumps you, and it guides you along with all these issues that are coming upon um, our folks today in the story. So we're going to have Christmas in uh, October. I hope that's okay. We're going, we're going to read the Advent story. It's very cold outside. I feel it fits. Before we get into it, I think it's important to understand a few contextual things that take place. Now, a lot of stuff happens between the Old and New Testament. There's a few things we should be aware of. This is after a very long time of prophetic, miraculous silence. Nothing is happening. It's been a time where there's a lot of remembering and not a lot of experiencing. And this has led to this obsession of what they, what historians call messianism, or let me think, messianism? Messianism. It's this obsession with the Messiah. They are getting into the Old Testament promises of this deliverer coming, and it's like there's been all this quiet stuff, and they just want this incredible thing to take place. So there's this uh, obsession with messianic fulfillment that has swept the nation of uh, Israel, and they have become very concerned with it. And now it's, it's, it's become such a thing that it has actually led to several extremely unsuccessful revolts. One of the most famous ones, surprisingly, that false messiah who rose up said, I am he, I am the messiah. His name was also Jesus, oddly enough. He was crucified when Jesus was a boy, and they say that there were so many crosses of him and his followers crucified that you could have walked for hours and hours along, moaning thousands of men that were hung on crosses on roads. Because when Rome crushes people, they crush them hard. So the dreams and aspirations, they're wrapped up in messianic hope. So they're looking and they're seeking, and they're looking into these things because it matters to them. To first century Jews, the Messiah was a liberator. We have a very different view of him after things. Of, I mean, he is a liberator, but we see this in a very spiritual sense. Uh, we see him liberating us in our, in our lives and sin. We see him liberating humans from the sinful condition. But uh, 
they, did, they saw him very much as a liberator. And even the passages in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus as being one who will set his people free from their sins, the Messiah coming to save people and to cleanse them, was all wrapped up in this obsession to be liberated because in the biblical idea, Israel would fall under attack and they would lose their sovereignty, they would lose control, they would lose being who they are when they sin. Therefore, everything they, they had this way of wrapping everything about the Messiah, even the clear promises that he would be far greater than a nationalistic king. They saw this as being, uh, they took everything and twisted it as they saw it, that even his cleansing of sins, even his salvation, these things, it's all pictures talking about him getting the nation ready for the great messianic age. Saving them from the repute of their sin would help them be liberated and rule themselves again. This overpowering desire shrouded their understanding of true salvation and their expectations. We do this often that we can have such an overwhelming desire that we can twist things that God is speaking to us and showing us, and we need that adjustment. The thing to know about God is that he never underdelivers. If he promises something, he will come through. Honestly, what is better, to see your flag flying over the Capitol or to spend eternity in salvation with God? He always comes through on a greater promise. God promises more than our expectations can seem. So there's going to come times, like we read today, when we have an expectation and it gets adjusted. So our first dream of the Advent, let's jump into this. We're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they had come together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph's response to when he finds out that Mary is pregnant is very interesting, and we talk about it a lot, but it's because it's worth talking about. He wants to divorce her quietly. He's very devout, but the choice to to divorce her quietly is going to cost him and save her, despite the fact that he believes that she has been unfaithful. And we have to understand the, the, the stage their marriage is in. We don't have the stage anymore. We've got like engaged, married. But they had like engaged, kind of married, really married. And so you would get betrothed and you were completely and fully legally married. You were expected to be faithful to that person, but the marriage was not consummated. Um, and so there would be a wedding and then after, there were, the wedding lasted five days. The first day, the, the married couple would consummate their marriage and the marriage was complete. So they're in the betrothal process when this takes place. So for her to be pregnant means that either Joseph broke the rules or uh, she did. For him to divorce her quietly uh, is going to uh, make him look bad because what it means is two things. One, it means that he's going to do it very quickly so that people don't have time to talk about it. And two, he's going to settle outside of court. 
That's what divorcing quietly meant, that he would settle outside of court. And court was your opportunity to say, I never laid a hand on her. I'm a righteous man. My honor will not be forsaken. And to shame her publicly so that you could retain your own honor. And yet being completely convinced that she has been unfaithful to him, he still decides to do this. And it says a lot about his character. Joseph is trying very hard to do what's right. But he's, what he is seeing how the Lord would work in his life and how the Lord is working in his life, they're very different. His expectation is off. He wants to do what is right and to divorce her quietly and peacefully, but the Lord wants him to take him and adopt Jesus as his son because that adoption is critical. Did you know that the, Jesus is the son of David, the heir to the throne of Judah, and he is that through Joseph and not through Mary? Mary didn't belong to the royal household. It was Joseph who did. And though their kings deposed, so he had no honor and no throne, he was the heir, the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son. If everything went back to normal, he should have been the one who was king. Jesus is the promise that David would have a son fulfilled forever is through adoption. And that should really mean something to us because it speaks to us the power of how God sees adoption. That promise when it's made to David, when he's thousands of years before this, he's praying and he's asking the Lord to do something and to, to show up mighty in his life. He sees this vision and God says to him, the sun and the stars will be suspended in the sky based on this promise. They will fall from the sky if, I, if this ever breaks a promise to you. Your son will be on the throne forever. That's why uh, the symbol for Israel is the Davidic symbol, the symbol of the star. The star represents the covenant, the promise that David's descendant will always be on the throne and it is fulfilled through adoption. The stars are suspended in space on adoption, meaning that when you are adopted into the kingdom of heaven, it is to a level and a power that you probably do not comprehend. This adoption is critical, and that is his role. And it's hard for Joseph to see this. He's just simply trying to do what's right. It's like when you put a puzzle together. We all have our process. You do the edges first, and then you clump up all the colors that are similar. But what's critical, and you, unless you're a genius, you need the picture on the box. You got to look at the picture on the box to put it together. And Joseph is trying to put this puzzle together, but he does not have the picture on the box. And this first dream gives him the picture on the box. What does it look like to be faithful? What does God want him to do? How can he fulfill the law, care for his family, and protect what matters? And he responds immediately. He does the right thing. What's interesting about the prophecy, there will be the, the virgin will conceive and she will bear a son and we will call him Emmanuel, is that that verse at this point is beginning to be looked at as messianic, but it actually its original context is not about something very far in the future. It was about King Hezekiah. In the days of Isaiah, when he's making this, prom, this, this prophecy, the Lord speaks this to him to share with the people. It's during the time of the wicked King Ahaz, one of the worst kings Judah ever had. And the entire nation is being shamed. It's being ridiculed. The religious system that is uh, for God is falling apart as other idols are being brought in. And the Lord speaks this, that a virgin, and a virgin in the Hebrew mind is just could be, it does mean virgin as we think of it, but it could also mean just a young maiden. It meant someone who's unmarried, who's not ready to have kids yet, perhaps, that there will be, there's a young woman right now. She's not married. She will conceive. She'll have a son. And when he is born, why am I emotional today? I think I know why. One kid was up till two in the morning and the other one was up at five. I've got hardly any sleep. I'm going to cry over everything. Get ready. 
uh, and Hezekiah will be born and they will say, when Hezekiah is born, God is with us again. Hezekiah, if you read the, the book of the Kings, he is a righteous king. He is good. So there's this interesting thing about Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment that it plays out a few times. Like, like a dress rehearsal almost, that there's a cycle and things happen, that the kingdom is falling apart and God says there will be someone who will rise up and, be, and they will take this place and when they are born, we will call him God with us. But it gets always grander in the New Testament. The, the more natural looking run of, of Hezekiah is like God is with them because he restores it and God actually being with them. There is a pattern to things that's really remarkable when we see this. A lot of Old Testament prophecies, we're talking about something that would be fulfilled in the lifetime of the people that heard it. And yet they get fulfilled in a grander way with Jesus. There is this pattern. So we should put our hope on the one that sees the pattern. There's a picture on the box. There are things that happen, a cycle that's going on. God knows what's gonna happen in your life. And he is the physician, the interpreter, and the one to help you see these things and guides us along our path. And he works so faithfully on Joseph's behalf, even when he's sleeping. I want to get to the second dream. After Jesus was born, it starts in verse, or chapter 2, in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, uh, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people and the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they were, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judea, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Almost there. And he's stable. Let's keep going. Then Herod called uh, the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And when he'd sent them to Bethlehem, he said, go search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me that I might, that I might go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went uh, on their way. Uh, and the star that they had seen rose and went ahead of them until it stopped at a place over where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and the, uh, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The Magi is a very interesting thing, the arrival of these Magi, sometimes called wise men or kings. That's a poor translation. Uh, Magi is far more accurate to what they were. Interestingly enough, if you were here last week, you heard me talk about the dream that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar, these diviners of the East. That is the exact same people that this is. They come back in the story uh, later on. They're from, this, they're from a similar order. They would have used the same sort of text. They would have used the same kind of system. And even though the Eastern empires are gone and they're more of a memory, the seers, the magi, were very respected in the Roman Empire. And they were seen as true seers. 
And like I said last week, they used fixed methods for determining dreams and what things meant. They didn't, Jews and Hebrews, they sort of, they felt their way through stuff. They heard the Lord speak as the Holy Spirit spoke to them and they would speak. But diviners from the East, they had books, they had rules, they had laws of what this meant and that meant. And they would use that and they would study things uh, and come to understanding through all of, all of their means. So the way they would interpret a dream, the way they would interpret stars, these are fixed things that they'd come up with in their pagan religion. Stars did not appear brand new very often. They still don't. By the time the light reaches us and we can see it, um, and that's when we, see, we feel like a star has, a, has appeared, these things do not happen very often. So when it happens, this is not a normal thing of like, oh, there's always a star every year. There's the star guys. Once you've been in the Magi Union for a while, you get to go on the star trip. It's great. Uh, this was very rare, and it's a big deal, and it's why the gifts are so expensive and why they came so far away is because if the astrological signs are correct, this king is so significant, Caesar should be worried. It's an amazing picture of grace. I mean, these books that were likely written on things like goat skin, scraped in, written with maybe blood, done in sacrifice in rooms full of pagan worship. They wrote these rules on how to interpret stars and meaning, and God spoke their language to send them. What an incredible picture of grace and how broad this calling really is. That when he first arrives, as much as it is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, the Lord sent Gentiles and he spoke to them through their broken language. And their adoration is the first picture of Gentiles finding hope in the Messiah. On the flip side, you've got King Herod. Now, if you're, if you're not aware, King Herod doesn't want to really worship Jesus. He's a liar. And he's terrified. He's terrified particularly of the Davidic line because Herod is not part of it. He has no claim to that throne. In fact, here's an interesting thing about Herod. We find out in history, he's actually not even a Jewish person. He wasn't. He converted to Judaism. He was actually an Edomite, meaning that he comes from the line of Esau, and he was not himself a Jew. He was put on the throne. Uh, there was a, an alliance that was brokered between uh, his, his, I think, his grandfather and the Jews during the time of the Maccabean Revolt, and so they were kind of allowed to be like pseudo-Jews. They're like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like honorary Jews, they're allowed to come in. They were very wealthy, they were very powerful, so they brokered deals with Rome very quickly, and they, not Jews, were put on the throne. So he is terrified. He's afraid of what is going to happen if a, if a line of David arrives. And it's this interesting thing to where we start to see again, remember I was talking about cycles in the Old Testament playing out again? We see a descendant of Esau who wants the blessing, but it was not God's idea for him to have a blessing. And the chosen one takes it. The exact same thing that happened with Jacob happens with Jesus as well. Another grander fulfillment. Herod was a horrible person. Herod the Great, as they called him, because of the things that he built, and not because of who he was. He was not great. He had three of his sons murdered, two of them on outrageous suspicion that everyone believed his sons weren't trying to usurp his throne. And the third one, might have been guilty, but it was after he killed the first two brothers. What are you going to do? He had one of his wives strangled. There was a priest who criticized uh, some of his lifestyle choices, and that priest mysteriously drowned in two feet of water the next day. Herod was such a difficult person that Caesar is quoted as saying, I would rather be Herod's dog than his son. 
which was a play on uh, Latin words, I'd rather be as heist than as heisen. Like all imposters, this violent man fears the truth. He fears when a real king who can claim it with truth would come. And when he hears that this is happening, he knows messianic obsession is sweeping the nation. He's looking for it too. He gets filled with fear. What will happen if he really is from the line of David? Jesus is rejected by him because he brings truth. Even though he was a child, those who reject Christ often are rejecting truth in themselves. True repentance requires an obedience and an honesty to God, requires this honesty. We tell ourselves lies that make us feel comfortable for a long time, and we don't like that Jesus is going to make us correct those lies. A person may tell themselves, I'm a good person, a faithful husband. I never have affairs. I just have these kind of like flirty connections with someone at work over a long period of time, but it never gets physical, and I'm fine. I am still a good person and still a good husband. But that doesn't stand when Jesus starts saying stuff like just looking at another woman and desires committing adultery in your heart. Jesus is often rejected because we don't want to give up the lies we tell ourselves. Rejected on a grand scale, yes, when people reject him entirely and don't want to give their life to him. But in little ways in our own lives, sometimes God, sometimes Jesus is just a little too honest for us. Truth is truth. And if you know the truth, the truth sets you free. It is always better to choose it. Herod, he, he traded riches for rags. To, to hang on nervously to a throne that he both loved and despised and coveted, though no one took it from him, and to live his life in turmoil until he's finally struck dead is such a poor trade than going and finding who the Magi had pointed out and laying his crown at his feet and coming to know who Jesus was. Truth might not feel comfortable at first, but never trade riches for rags. Truth will always set you free. As hard as truth is, it is the riches of life. God works wonders through those who live honestly before him. I'd spoken about the sense of, well, I got to be perfect on the first day and improve from there. And we wonder, how many times can I mess up? What kind of insurance do I have that I can be stable? God does not require us to be perfect, but he requires us to be honest before him. God can do incredible things through an honest person who's willing to be bounced around, adjusted, who won't hide, who won't choose a lie over truth. Herod holds all power in this scene. He really does. He, he is the most powerful person. Not many people were made kings under Rome. There was district rulers and stuff, but a king could kill people, and that is his authority. It's his power, and he did it often. What do we do when, the evil, when evil is in power? God frustrates their plans. But those who live honestly before him, he, he hedges around them. Though they can screw up, though our best laid plans to mess up our own life show up, God keeps bouncing us and guiding us along. That grace comes to those that respond, that when we hear truth is here, will you go see it? We don't say, where is truth? Because I want to kill it because I don't want to change. There's going to be ups and downs for both, both for the Herod people, both for the honest people. But it's those that are honest before the Lord 
and the person who's submitted that are always brought home in the end, that things work out for their good. And we see that playing out again. We're going to continue verse 13. We're going to pick up right where we left off. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took, he took uh, the child and his mother, and during the night they left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. Uh, and so this uh, so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Another one of those cycle f- uh, fulfillments, because that's talking about Israel coming out of Egypt, but now it's referring to the Son of God, always fulfilled at a grander scale when Jesus shows up. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they're very wise, he is not, that was probably easy, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in the vicinity who were two years old or under, in accordance with the time the Magi, or that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in, in Ram, <laughs> a voice heard in Ramah weeping uh, in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is an incredible overkill plan. To, to get to a point where you're going to do a, a tactical surgical removal of a child, you're going to find out who they are and you're going to disrupt one family to get the bad news that they're gone and to kill every single child is the overkill solution. And yet God protects them anyway bounces them off anyway, that, that though Herod intends all this destruction, he has made the best strategic plan. If I can't find him, I'll kill them all and he'll be killed among them. We went to the, the men's retreat and there was a, an extremely animated post-Marine and boy, when they speak, they speak, don't they? He said, uh, he loved to open up. Every time you spoke, you said they opened up the same thing, that we, there is an enemy out to get us and he's not playing checkers, he's playing chess and he wants to remain three moves ahead of you. What do we do when we have an enemy who doesn't make mistakes, who, who, is, who is calculated and in, incredibly driven? We can feel a pressure to, to counter by being ourselves perfectly prepared, but that is so re- unrealistic. It is not going to happen. We have a peace knowing that even in our sleep, God defends us. And, and I want you to hear this because that to me, what I just said, that was the thing that was in my heart pastorally about this whole series that I wanted for, for you to hear is that even in your sleep, God protects you. Even in your sleep, God guides you. Even when you are not reaching out, you do not have to to go up to the mountain and to see the Lord always to get every warning or you're not gonna hear it. God is faithful and he comes to us even when we are not asking for it. And that we deep down would accept and understand how God cares for us and to be in sync with that. I told you last night my daughter is up till two, and I don't know why, uh, but last night before she went to bed, she said she was scared. She said she thought a snake under her bed. It was the arm of her monkey. We sorted that, uh, and she said, is she safe? I said, yes, you're safe. You need to tell yourself, Victoria, you are in your house with your mom and dad. All the doors are locked, and we're safe, and I wish that she would have 
accepted that, that she would have went in sync with, with the reality that it was that, of course, we're going to protect her. She's in a very safe place. Maybe she would have gone to sleep before 2 a.m. That's my hope for us, that we would be in sync, understanding that God watches you, protects you, looks after you. He's working in the sleep. He works the night shift. He's always speaking to us, and he will be faithful to us. And to be at peace, to be at rest, and to look for God even in restful moments. Let's read the final dream. After Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. He said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee uh, and uh, went and lived in the town of Nazareth. So it was fulfilled that the prophets, or what was said through the prophets, that he would be called Nazarene. In what way did the Old Testament say he would be called Nazarene? Because if you look that up, nowhere did it say he would be called Nazarene. There are some people that have, that have attached this to the Nazarites in the Old Testament. They were these, they're kind of like monks. You can think of like Hebrew monks. But there is also one thing is that play on words only exists in English. And two, nothing in the Old Testament says the Messiah would be a Nazarite. And so we have to ask, what on earth is Matthew talking about? Several times in the New Testament, they will say the prophets said this, and it's not a direct quote, but it's more of, a, of an overall theme in the prophets being interpreted. And that certainly seems to be at play here. And we miss this because we don't exist in first century uh, Judea, so we don't get what is being said there. But Nazarene was though basically the same word as hillbilly, redneck, oaky. In the same way we say oaky, and we use that for all kinds of people, even though that was invented for Oklahomans, <laughs> Uh, that's what Nazarene was. It's a derogatory term. In fact, when, the, when Peter is being faulted at the, at, the, at the trial of Jesus, one of the things they say is they said, we knew you were a Galilean, we could hear it in your voice. It's this, it's this repugnant, people didn't like them there. They were, it was an, an unremarkable place when, uh, when uh, one of the apostles hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, what good could come from Nazareth? Jesus comes from these incredibly humble origins, that it is a theme in the Old Testament that he would not be someone who comes from a place of honor, that he wouldn't be someone that we'd look on with pride, that he would be the hillbilly Messiah. Coming from the hills, the remote places, that he didn't, he didn't come from the same kind of palace living. Herod had no claim to the throne, but he was from a wealthy family that lived in the capital city. And before he knew it, through his father's father's father, he himself is sitting on the throne. Jesus is the son of a poor carpenter who has every claim to that throne. He's his adopted son. He's called Nazarene, a shameful place to be from. It imputes no honor. There impedes no honor. What are you? And yet he's the one raised up. God protects anyone who lives honestly before him. No one is worth it while some people are not. In many ways, Christ represents those that come after him. 
and the things that he does, the, the way he goes through tribulation and raises again, he, he is our forerunner. And one of the ways he is also our forerunner is that he comes from humble means and ascends to something great. Many reasons could have been raised as to why Jesus of Nazareth, that title was not a proud one, why he should have come to nothing, why he was insignificant. Many reasons could be raised why you are insignificant. Given time for and the opposition to make their case, they could take hours listing the ways that we are insignificant. But only one thing matters. I'm telling you, I was once, uh, I was found myself in a legal situation where I bumped into somebody and they made this huge fraud case about it, said that I injured their family and it was this outrageous case and everyone told me it'll settle out of court. It didn't and I'm in court and I'm sitting down in the box and I'm listening to someone who's very wealthy, very smart, professionally lie about me. And I hear the case and it sounds horrible and it sounds like we're done for. Like, like I don't know how anything can, can come from this because they gotta go first. Defense goes second though. And when my lawyer got up there, I realized something. What really matters is the reply. A lot of things could be made as a case as to why you're insignificant, but what matters most is the reply. That you are significant, not because of where you come from. You're significant because of the one who calls you. Herod was insignificant because he was not called. Jesus was significant because he was. Joseph was significant because he was called to protect and to pass the throne to that boy who would sit on it forever. Life is a roller coaster. It goes up and down. And just like a roller coaster, it can be scary coming up to it. But it always comes to the end. It always brings us back for those who are faithful, those who listen to the Lord, those in sync with him, those who trust, those who want his truth in, his, in their lives. That we could rest easy knowing that God cares for us even when we're sleeping, when we're awake, whether we are significant or insignificant. And that we could have sweet dreams, knowing that as we have sweet dreams, God opposes bitter enemies, that he bounces us, that you do not have to start out perfect and improve from there. You just need to be able to be bounced, open to that heart of honesty. Lord, speak to me and guide me in my waking and in my sleeping. Let me pray for us. Lord, I ask that we would never forget this study, what it meant to look through the dreams. Would it go deep, God? Would it go deep? Even when we literally sleep at night, would it impact our sleep? Would it impact the way that we see the future, the way that we prepare and plan? Would it dig deeper our relationship with you? that we could quit freaking out and panicking, then instead settle down and just be with the Lord. God, I thank you that you protect us, you hedge us in, you guard us. You are uh, the one that bounces us back. Five times you spoke protecting the son. In the early days of his life, bounce, 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 bounce. Lord, continue to bounce us, speak to us, show us where we need adjustment, Lord. We are those who want your truth, that the truth would set us free. God, we don't need perfect preparation. What we need is you. We need you every moment of our lives, God. We need you, the one who makes us significant. 
Let us be changed forever as we draw closer to you. Let our confidence go deeper. But the Lord is always at work for us. In the name of the dream giver and the dream fulfiller, the dream himself, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.